0: what we think, particularly for people, um, leaders, is we try to think of our role as to find a way to yes. So rather than, you know, you go into a lot of meetings and people think it's their job to to say no, really my job um, is, if someone's brought me a proposal, is to try to work out how to get it to yes.
1: Welcome to How I Work, a show about the tactics used by the world's most successful people to get so much out of their day. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm an organisational psychologist, the founder of behavioural science consultancy Inventium, and I'm obsessed with finding ways to optimise my workday. My guest on today's Best of episode is Paul Migliarini. Paul leads the Amazon Web Services business across Australia and New Zealand, which is a role that he's been in for the last four years. Prior to joining AWS, Paul held senior leadership roles in Asia and Australia with BT, Motorola, Regis and Ernst & Young, and most recently as the CEO for Regis ANZ and the Regional Managing Director for South Asia at BT. So I was really keen to have Paul on the show because I have heard so many things about Amazon's culture and just their ways of working which I find fascinating and there is nothing better than being able to get an insider's perspective on how it all works so if you've ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes of one of the world's biggest fastest growing and most powerful companies I think you'll love this chat with Paul so on that note let's go to Paul to hear about how he works Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I want to start with what we were just talking about before we started recording, and this is that you've been having email and calendar problems on your phone, and now you're actually going to change your behavior as a result of what happened. Can you tell me about that?
0: So, um, it's totally by accident, and as they say, constraint does breed innovation in many cases. And so, my I had an issue with my, um, with my phone, so for some reason that I still haven't resolved, uh, my email and calendar stopped working. And I just haven't gotten around to getting it fixed. And so I've been living in this world without email and and calendar. And uh, my realization is that um, I really miss my calendar, but I don't miss my email. And it's helped me be a lot more present and helped me manage the context switching that happens during my workday, but equally um, the context switching that needs to happen when I go home in a much more effective way. Um, So you're very intentional about when you look at your email and when you're focused on it, what you do with it. Um, And I'm, I'm thinking it's contributing to a pretty good increase in productivity. So when and if I get my phone fixed, I think I will uh, leave my email off and put my calendar back on. But it's been a really positive change by accident.
1: That's awesome. Um, and so you're saying when you get home, like rather than, you know, in in the pre-broken phone days, you might maybe check your email a few times like mm-hmm. throughout the night because it's just so easy to do when it's on yeah. your phone. But yeah. now it's intentional. You open up your laptop once and check and
0: totally and because you know in our world and i think most people would work in this way you're working across multiple time zones um you know within australia and new zealand but around the world and so you've got these threads that stay open and you're trying to process things in real time because customers are looking for for quick results and so you tend to just continue to look at things um, because you've got so many things that are open sometimes that's productive because you can be really responsive but most of the time it's not because you get distracted by a whole raft of things it could easily wait uh till another time a more formal time
1: Yes, because I was going to ask, like there, there must be listeners kind of going, yeah, but what if there's an emergency that you're going to miss? Like, mm-hmm. What do you so say to that?
0: People can call or they can send an SMS or, or something like that. And so there are other means to get in touch.
1: <laughs> That's right. There are, aren't there? We forget about <laughs> the phone, <laughs> don't we? Yes. Good old-fashioned calling. Yes. Exactly. Well, I want, to, I want to dig into Amazon's leadership principles because I think they're really interesting and maybe for those um, – Really most listeners are not aware of the mm-hmm. leadership principles. Can you just explain briefly what, what they are and yeah. why they exist?
0: Sure. Um, so we have uh, 14 of, of these principles that the best way to, to think about it, I think, is uh, as an operating system for the company. So there's a set of pr- principles that are bookended by two, the first being customer obsession, which is that everything we do in, in the company starts with a customer and works backwards. And we try to take a really long-term perspective to that and and keep customer trust as our kind of core true north. And and the, the, the other end of the bookend is deliver results. And then there's 12 other principles that sit between those two. And a lot of it started, it goes back to kind of the early days of of the company when we floated in 1997, Jeff Bezos wrote a letter to shareholders and, and said some important things in that letter. He said, "You know, we're going to build a company that's really focused on the customer, and we're going to index on the long term, and and not be um, thrown off course by short term um, sort of market forces or other things that may get in the way of of us and our customers." And I think that the, a lot of those principles and a bunch of others have been codified over the years into these these fourteen leader, leadership principles. And what we try to do is, as an organisation, is is operate in a very decentralised way, where People close to the customer can be really clear on how to make good quality decisions at at high velocity velocity without having to refer them back to, you know, to managers or even to head office for decision making. So it helps us move really, really quickly and and it helps us make, you know, good quality decisions around what we're trying to do for our customers. And really it's one of the, the big fundamentals on how we can move really quickly. And it's a kind of absolute bedrock of how we run our company.
1: Yeah, 14, like that's a lot. And one of them is frugality, mm-hmm. which sort of seems at odds with <laughs> having 14 principles. Isn't but that right? Yeah. So, I, I do want to delve into maybe frugality first sure. and yep. tell me about what does that mean and how how does that actually play out? Like, for example, we we're just talking about lunch before. Mm. And apparently Amazon's not giving you a free lunch. What? You're a tech company. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, it, um, it, there's a couple of aspects to this, this principle of frugality. One of them is that we believe really fundamentally into, in, in this idea of investing in things that we can directly correlate with benefit to our customers. Um, and, you know, we think that, you know, a lot of these superfluous benefits don't, right? We try to I – mean, it's not as though we're, we don't spend. I think, as I recall one, last year, we were one of, if not the largest, spender globally in the context of R&D, you know, over $20 billion in R&D. But we try to make sure that investment is deliberately focused on creating value for our customers. So that's one big aspect of it, and we try to be really disciplined about that. The other big aspect of frugality is this notion of constraint, you know, so when you do actively constrain resources, um, typically what you find is that um, you come up with really interesting ways to solve problems. So in a world where you have unlimited resources, you probably aren't going to be a particularly innovative company because you don't have to be. But when you're actively constraining resources, you tend to find really creative ways to solve problems. So that's a couple of the fundamentals that sit behind this notion of frugality. And it's a really important leadership principle. And often most people will say it's one of the more difficult ones because we're growing so quickly and investing so readily in, in so many important things and you know, we try to think really big, which is another one of our leadership principles and be very expansive as to how we think about um, creating value for our customers. And you have to invest a lot, you know, and then to actively constrain resources at the same time is is quite a difficult discipline, but a really important one.
1: And so, can you give me an example of where where you've had to apply that in a way, I guess, that's been challenging for, mm-hmm. for you in your role?
0: Yeah, so, typically what will happen is, you know, we will get an investment plan and, you um, and often the teams will be saying, look, I'm looking to, you know, there's this many customers and we believe fundamentally we can, um, we can help them in, in a really interesting ways. And therefore we need this, you know, this, um, level of investment. And we'll go, okay, that's interesting. But, you know, how would you do that with half the investment? Um, because we're, we're constantly thinking about this idea of scale and in particular the notion of doing it in a nonlinear way, you know. So as we're trying to grow our business, you know, how can we be, doing it in a way that's not proportional, i.e. where – because that's ultimately not um, effective in the long term. So, we'll, we'll consciously say, well, okay, you can have half or you can have a quarter. And invariably what happens is it's super interesting because the team go away. And because because it, it's conditioned through our principles, it's not a real frustration. People know that's why we're doing it. And it just is a forcing function to go away and think about a problem in a very different way. And, and most people find it to be you know pretty useful.
1: So, would that then be unusual to give a project the full funding that has been requested?
0: It really depends. I mean, we, we are investing, you know, really, really heavily in lots, lots of people. Um, and that's because the market opportunity is there. And we see that customers are driving a lot of value from the work we're doing. And therefore, we're investing against that. Um, and so, there's a tension, you know, um, between the two. And it's a question of how well you manage that, that tension. I guess that just coming back to leadership principles for a moment, I mean, it, Part of the way or one of the easier ways, I think, to think about it is that we have this kind of fundamental belief um, around... Uh, the company that we that we are a company where builders come to build and so this notion of being a builder it really is the embodiment of these 14 leadership principles that you know you are really focused on invention you really want to think big you have a strong level of ownership and bias for action around how you solve customers and so you can you can roll all of those principles up into this idea of of being builders and we think that everyone's a leader and everyone should be a builder uh, and really therefore represent those principles in a really kind of effective way.
1: So, how does that relate? Like in terms of everyone's a builder, if you're in say sales or marketing or something like that, like you're, an, you're not an engineer, how do those people conceptualize that?
0: I can give you a real example. So, uh, my current manager, uh, Ed, who was my predecessor in my current role um, a number of years ago now, four or five years ago, um, was looking at um, what we're doing for our customers. And, and he had a hypothesis around um, this notion of global customers and how they wanted to deploy tech. And, and so he had a, an idea, basically, and he wrote it up in a six-pager. And he said, look, we need to think about building a new organizational unit that's really built specifically for the needs of these global multinationals who who want to consume tech in different ways. They're highly distributed. And and so he wrote a six-pager. And when build a, a, an entirely new business to today is a multi-billion business uh, from a six page document. So that's a really good example in in the world of, of sales of how this works. Today we, um, we have a team of people here who are doing incredible work around this idea of what we call the cognitive customer experience. So we've got a platform that effectively creates a, a software-based contact center called Amazon Connect. But equally, what we're seeing is that loads of customers are looking to integrate that with AI and a whole raft of other things that will help them to transform the customer experience. And so we we created a small team. Um, we called it a two-pizza team um, of builders who are out there. And,
1: and can you explain what you mean by a two-pizza team uh, for those yes, that are not familiar with that channel? I chat? will.
0: Um, so it, it's essentially a, a small cross-functional team that has uh, the, the requisite skills within it to operate compre- completely automatically. Autonomously, and the idea is that what we want in terms of scale is a is a team that's um, kind of that you could feed with two pizzas is the basic rule of thumb. So we think it kind of ten to twelve people roughly. And the reason we try to keep it um, small is because what happens is, as teams grow is you tend to have to create um, a whole series of mechanisms to establish to manage cross-functional communication. So what happens is once you get to a certain level of scale, you're building all of these overheads into the team, and it it impairs your ability to move fast. So we call it a two-pizza team and have. Um, a principle around scaling those teams horizontally that enables us to move fast. So we created this two-pizza team around Connect and today we've got many, many hundreds of customers across Australia and New Zealand using the Connect platform integrated with a whole raft of our artificial intelligence services to think in a very different way around uh, improving the customer experience and there's many of those types of examples.
1: Yeah, I like the idea of scaling horizontally. That's an interesting way of putting it and I've heard um, Bezos say that he would prefer two completely separate teams working on the same thing Mm -hmm. and not knowing about each other's work and then just kind of finding out after the resources have been used. Can you maybe go into that a little bit? Because I feel like that's a really challenging concept for most organizations that are organized in a really structured way.
0: There's a leadership principle that's kind of helpful there. It's called having a bias for action. Um, And so we believe that um, one is, is probably better than two, but equally two is a whole lot better than zero. Um, and, um, and what we mean by that is that, um, doing nothing is not a good answer. So invariably what we accept that if we have a bias fraction and we see an opportunity, rather than stopping and waiting and, and you know aligning all of the resources and making sure there's no waste, invariably what tends to happen in a lot of companies is nothing, right? And we accept that in some cases what we might create is a situation where there may be two people or two groups of people doing the same thing or even more. Uh, but if we're moving forward um, around the customer's agenda and we've got good rigor in what we're doing and we're learning, then ultimately it's, it's going to be better than doing nothing because we'll learn and at some point in the future we may consolidate or align or whatever, but it's way better than doing nothing. So we accept that in moving fast and having a bias fraction, there may be some waste.
1: So how does that then sit with you as a leader? Because again, I would imagine most senior leaders, it is important for them to, you know, retain control and understand what's going on in every pocket of the mm. organization and feel like they're all acro- like across it. But I would imagine it couldn't be like that here mm. based on that. What's what's that? Life.
0: yeah it's it 's kind of interesting I, I often tell people that you don 't do a whole lot of management work at amazon you you do a whole lot of coaching um, and uh, and the leadership principles become really helpful there because you know we 're hoping that people are out in front of customers making great decisions and and helping customers in a really effective way and The last thing I want to do is get in the way of that. I want to give them as much freedom to uh, to do that work as I possibly can, because it'll enable them to move faster, and we'll learn from that, and we'll just get better and better over time of, at, in terms of helping our customers. Um, what we try to focus on, um, rather than outputs, is, is a set of inputs. So we try to be, feel really convicted around the inputs. Um, you know, in the case of you know the cognitive CX work that we're doing, we, we look at. You know, how many customers are experimenting with the platform? We look at how much value they're getting from it. We we look at, you know, the skills that they might otherwise need to be able to really affect um, change and, and get value from the platform. So we'd measure those sorts of inputs and make sure that we're applying our effort on um, the right inputs because then, you know, what we try to do is apply the test that says, well, Let's then measure the causality to outputs, you know, which might be sort of a set of business goals. It might be, you know, in our case, it may be revenue or sales or the P&L or whatever. And, and as long as we feel like we're convicted on the right inputs, then it's really about ensuring that we're supporting the teams effectively and enabling them as much freedom as possible to, to move quickly in front of the customer.
1: Yeah, okay, that's interesting. So, kind of like lead versus lag measures, I guess. Yeah, or you
0: could call them leads. You know, We, we, we use the term inputs quite um, intentionally and we, we do measure a lot of things. We're a very data-driven organisation and, and we try to be very, very convicted uh, and have a whole lot of rigour on in terms of what we measure and the inputs we measure. Uh, so, there that's some of the things we think we think about um, and, and hopefully those inputs really guide us. Um, to the things that are most important for our customers, and in the fullness of time, we think that'll mean that it'll create value for us.
1: Now, you mentioned bias for action as one of the leadership principles. There's also deep dive is another one. And for me, kind of when I was looking through them and thinking about them, they feel kind of at odds. And I want to know how how do they actually play together and complement each other?
0: Yeah, there's there's certainly a, a tension there, and that tension's quite deliberate. So the the way we think about that particular um, uh, aspect is that. It comes down to um, judgment, which is embodied by another leadership principle called Right-A-Lot. Um, and, and we try to uh, ensure that we're making a judgment call. In this case, um, the judgment call is built around the type of decision. And so we think about decisions in, in two forms. We think about a decision uh, being a, a two-way door, i.e. that it's inherently reversible, in which case we should um index on moving quickly even if we don't have perfect information um we just need to you know kind of use intuition and judgment and move really quickly equally if we take the view that it's what we call a one way door so inherently irreversible then um we expect that our leaders and by the way everyone inside amazon is a leader so when i talk about leader i'm talking about everybody as opposed to people leaders um then we expect our leaders to exercise good judgment and dive deep and go really deep into the problem, um, get to the to the root of the the opportunity or the root of the challenges in a, in a very rigorous data driven way, to ensure that we're making as good a decision as we possibly could. And so that's how we think about that.
1: Is it always obvious whether the door is one way or two ways?
0: No, it's not always obvious, which is why we rely on good judgment. You know, we're hoping that people can see, hey, this is, you know, I think in most cases it's reasonably obvious when you look at a decision and go, well. You know, I can see how that's inherently reversible. Like, if we've we got that wrong, as long as we've got good rigor around what we're learning, then you know, we'll we'll pivot and iterate uh, in an effective way. Equally, if it's a really big decision, and you've seen some of those, there's, there's really big decisions that you know um, that we've made. Invariably, people like Jeff Bezos and, in our case, Andy Jassy are, are super involved in those decisions, um, and everyone goes really deep on those specific decisions. But usually, it is. But in some cases, not not so much.
1: I feel like disagree and commit is is gets a lot of PR as one mm. of the leadership principles and can you explain for those that haven't come across it what it means and then I'm curious how how you have personally gone about applying that because I think it's a challenging one
0: yeah I, th- I think it's one of my absolute favorites um, on on many levels the root of the the principle is is this idea that um, you know if you have a if you're a scenario where we're in a, a room um, for context that has white walls, And there's another wall that is black. And, you know, we could have a debate as to whether the wall is white or black and, what happens in many companies is you tend to land on consensus and you go, okay, let's agree that it's grey. But the answer is that wall's white, unambiguously white. Um, and so what we should do is we should have a really robust and rigorous argument that gets us to the right answer. And let's have a lot of backbone about that, um, you know, and, and make sure that you know if we have a strong opinion on it, we're putting that opinion on the table in really forthright ways. And because it'll, we believe it'll get us to a better quality. Answer, and we shouldn't be meek and mild about that, and we shouldn't be consensus-based because ultimately, if we if we if we land on the wrong answer, it's going to mean mean a bad outcome for our customer. And so, what we try to do is we try to build um, a bunch of cultural conditions that say, hey, it's really okay to have a very rigorous debate. Now, clearly it needs to be respectful. It needs to be data driven, but it needs to be forthright. And we expect people to have a load of backbone on that. And, and it's good because it creates a level of permission. And what happens is we, you know, it's a big part of how we recruit people that, you know, we have an expectation that you're gonna, you're gonna really fight your corner on a position if you think it's important for customers. And you're not gonna back down for, unless you've, you know, you've really made your, your case clearly. And then uh, the other part of it, of course, is to say, look, when we've made a decision, uh, then let's make sure we've made it, you know, and, and nobody is second guessing the decision because we'll choose to move forward. And, and so I find it's really, really helpful um, because most of the people I work with um, at what, whatever level I can rely upon to give me a really honest data-driven view on a perspective and that's that's really, really useful, you know. You don't have to second guess or assume that people won't. Most people, you know, I would hope all people inside our company will.
1: So how does that work in a meeting then? Because normally I'm just thinking about a typical meeting where it's a consensus-based mm-hmm. decision as it is at, you know, 99% of companies and you know when the meeting has finished because you've reached consensus. But here, like how... How do you know when you've reached the decision because you don't have that natural consensus, like, of closure?
0: Well, we, we try to make sure that we make a clear decision. Um, and most meetings, um, are kind of unusual in the sense that, um, we, we, we do really believe in, in being very data driven and rigorous in our decision making. Um, and, uh, we have a mechanism for that. Uh, most meetings, by the way, um, internally we don't use PowerPoint. Um, most meetings are governed by, uh, uh, a 60, well, in its longest form, a six-page narrative, but it's a written form narrative. And the reason we use a narrative is because it does that job, right? You're not relying on interpretation. You're not using high-level superficial data and, you know, nice pictures. You're actually having to write a long-form narrative and you have to you have to substantiate the statements you make in that narrative um, with clear data and um, and when they 're well written what we find is it 's really useful because at the start of a meeting we stop and we read it and we usually take fifteen to twenty minutes in silence to read it and it gets everyone onto the same page uh, in a really effective way really quickly and what I tend to find and we have a, a basically a set of principles around how these meetings should run, which is that um, people the, the senior most person in the room should speak last so as not to introduce any uh, any bias inadvertently, and then we have a, a robust debate, and um, and then the the opinions of the, the senior person are kind of informed by everyone else's opinion, and then typically we get a fairly clear decision as a consequence of that. So, I find that that um, mechanism in particular, that narrative um, uh, form, is really helpful to getting clear decisions, and you know, and that, that that have backbone, disagree and commit principle is is clearly at work. But what happens is with the document is you you do tend to get a lot of rich. Data that that kind of removes a lot of the interpretation and subjectivity that you often see with PowerPoint in, mm. in other organisations.
1: Yeah, I want to come back to the six page narrative. Mm. Um, but on on the disagreeing commit for you, how how, how do you manage that just internally? Because I imagine there must have been many decisions that you disagreed on but had to commit to. Like how how internally has that worked for oh, you? It's
0: totally fine. Uh, I mean, I, I love it. You know, you know, I because I, I, I feel. Uh, and certainly it 's the case with the people i work directly with um, is that you know you really you really are expected to have a strong <coughs> strong opinion and actually it's it counts against you if you have an opinion and you don 't share it so i 'm going to give you my opinion, but you know the expectation is you do it in a very objective data driven way and so here 's the basis of my opinion and and you 'll have a good quality argument and it 's not it 's not subjective it 's objective and you tend to get the, you know, the argument or conversation built around the right things and you get to a much clearer decision. And, you know, I've, you know, it's happened many times that decisions have gone against me and I feel totally fine about that um, because it's not as though you haven't voiced an opinion and you usually, what you find is that it's um, a good considered decision that gets made, even if it's one that you probably don't agree with. And so it's, I find it to be really effective.
1: How, how do you pick up for that in recruitment? Because I feel like so many cultures, um, my own workplace culture at Inventium included a like we've got very nice, agreeable people. And I love this principle of Amazons and, you know, it reminds me of radical candor. And and like there are sort of lots of versions, um, you know, of that, I guess. So how do you pick up for that in recruitment to find someone that's actually going to thrive in a disagreeing environment?
0: Yeah, we test for it. Um, And the way we test for it is that we have another leadership principle called hire and develop the best. Um, And the thinking behind that leadership principle is that we want every person who comes into the organisation to be a creative in the context of our company culture, that they're bringing something that's additive. Uh, and the test we use is that they're better than 50% of people already in that role. So we try to apply an empirical test to that. And then we have a mechanism um, that we call the loop. Um, and in the loop, um, it's quite a uh, you know a, a structured process where a candidate um, – who usually has already met a competency bar um, goes into a process, and specifically, what we're trying to test for is is whether the person is going to going raise the bar in the context of our culture. And each of the interviewers in the loop um, is assigned one or two leadership principles, and we'll you know and ask a series of questions related to gathering data as to whether that person is is raises the bar or not against the leadership principles. And then we have a, um, a debrief at the end, and we compare data points and one of those leadership principles will always be have backbone, disagree and commit and uh, and we'll have a conversation about it. If we don't feel like the person raises the bar we'll talk about why and whether we feel like it can be mitigated because um, nobody's going to be perfect against 14 leadership principles it's usually the case but the question is can can they be mitigated and do we feel like the strengths outweigh some of the perhaps risks that we see and then what happens which is which is one of the things I really like is we have um, typically in recruitment processes, you have a lot of biases that are built into recruitment processes. You have a bias from the hiring manager who's invariably got an incentive to hire you because um, at that particular point in time, he or she may not have someone in the role and therefore is suffering as a consequence of doing two jobs. You know, there's a whole bunch of biases there. So we have what's called a, a bar raiser. And the bar raiser is typically what we think of as a role model uh, Amazonian, someone who's really kind of um, embodies the leadership principles in a really strong way and they're, they're certified and they have no stake whatsoever in the outcome of that decision other than to ensure that this person raises the bar against our leadership principles and in the debrief that person has a veto vote. Uh, and, and it often gets exercised um, and so we try to make sure that if you, if you accept the premise that you know our culture and our people are, are going to drive in the fullness of time our ability to be successful for customers and therefore successful ourselves then the point of hiring is a massively important point in time in the context of our long-term success so we spend a lot of time and effort on that.
1: Yeah that's awesome with the questions that you're asking around the leadership principles? Are they, are they more like behavioral questions where you're like, tell me about a time where you've disagreed and committed? Like, is that the sort yeah, of thing we're- Yeah, we're-, we're just
0: looking for an evidence base around how the person's operated through their career that, you know, that we think align strongly to the things we think are really important.
1: Do you remember your recruitment process? I do. I do. What, what are some of the things that stood out to you or that, you, that were most memorable in terms of how they worked out whether you were right for the role?
0: I don't know because you don't get visibility to your own process. Yeah. No, you don't see the output. Um, obviously, it must have been okay.
1: Must have been. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but I, look, one of the things I find, um, and I get this feedback consistently from people, is that culture is a kind of interesting thing um, because it's not as though it's Good or bad. There's no, there's no judgment. I think typically people are good, for, you know, fit well in a culture or they don't, right? And and you may be an outstanding performer but not right for the culture, in which case you're probably not going to be successful or happy in an organization like this that's so strongly attuned to these 14 leadership principles. So, what I found is that even though it's a very time-intensive process, it's a really good screen both ways because, you know, often what I've had is people coming into the process going, look, I've got a really clear sense for your culture now because, you know, it's so evident through the process and, you know, I just don't think it's the right culture for me. And that's awesome You know, when you get that sort of an output because it's given people a chance to get a real sense of how the culture works and whether they're going to be happy and thrive and, and operate well in that environment. So, it's, it's really useful in that sense.
1: Yeah. Interesting. I want to come back to the six-page narrative sure. because I had heard that PowerPoints are banned. Uh, was that hard, by the way? To, because I imagine in your pre-Amazon or pre-AWS life, you would have created lots of PowerPoint documents. Lots of PowerPoint what was that like, yeah. getting well, that up? In
0: actual fact, I used to be a management consultant, so I lived in PowerPoint for a long time. And so, I I, I thought I would struggle with it, actually. Um, but um, it became it, be, it, it took a long time and it because it's not, it's not a natural um, thing. A lot of people don't spend time writing long-form documents in, in any company. And so, actually, it's a learned skill and it just takes a bit of practice. And we, you know, so... We we use long form narrative for most things. So for instance, when we when we do an interview, we'll write our notes up as long form narrative. We don't use bullet points, we just write them up as long form narrative. And so you just become very practiced at it. And so what I find is now it's just it's it's so useful. I just couldn't imagine operating without them now actually, because because of the level of rigor and depth you get to. And when you're writing one, what I find is I, I probably rewrite maybe six or seven of them a year, a long form six pages. Um, And when you're writing them, it gives you exceptional clarity um, because you really have to, uh, it forces you to be quite rigorous and to think things through deeply. So both in terms of consuming it, in terms of getting people onto the same page and writing them, it's a really, really useful mechanism. And and so I thought it'd be a lot harder than it was, to be frank, and uh, it wasn't at all.
1: Like I imagine when you say narrative, I imagine something reading like a short story. Is is that the right interpretation? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, six-page, long-form narrative, full sentences.
1: No dot points. No dot points. Beginning, middle, and end, Mm -hmm. with data woven in.
0: Black and white, um, you know, yeah. Wow. Mm. You can have lots of appendices, by the way, and so some people do. I I never do. Uh, But some you see these documents (laughs) that are so high. Well, but you don't have to read them, and that's the rule. Um, And so, again, it's a forcing function. So people have them, but you're not expected to read them. So you need to write the document with a view that um, the appendices may not be read.
1: How, how long does it take to write one of...
0: It, de- it kind of depends. Um, it depends. So, like, I sit down and write a, you know, a, a kind of a document that summarises our ANZ business once a year. And I take a lot of time on that because, it you know, I really go deep in every part of the business and think deeply about it. So maybe that's, you know, 50 or 60 hours of my time to write that. Equally, I've written docs that I can do, you know, in an afternoon in, in three or four hours um, that aren't perhaps as deep or kind of analytical as the, the broader docs. So it just kind of depends. You just get very good at writing them. Some of them are quick to write. Um, others take a, a lot longer.
1: Are you taught how to write? Because I, I feel like the, the ability to write, and particularly the ability to write prose, is mm. a lost skill. Does Amazon give you training? We do have
0: narrative writing courses, and so um, it's totally optional. So if people want coaching on it, you can get you can get coaching. And, and there's what we what you do find to your point is there's a bunch of people who are just really good at it, and they invariably become coaches to everyone else as well. I'm not one of those people. So
1: how did you get better at it? I assume that you've improved at it during your yeah, time it's, here. It's just
0: practice and conditioning. You just get good at it. You consume a lot of them. You know, you write a lot of them. You just mm. get good at it. Mm. I think. Moderately competent, I would describe probably not good.
1: Yeah, that, that, oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, just, I'm fascinated yeah. by that. I feel like there'd be, you know, people listening to this going, oh, do away with PowerPoints. But then I feel like with the amount of time and rigour that's going into a six-page narrative, and I assume that they don't have to be six pages, but that's just the limit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. And I assume that there are like font size guidelines, so totally. you're not just going 8-point font Totally. 10-point
0: to T- yeah. font minimum. There's there's hard rules around uh, margin sizes and line spacing, the whole lot. Because, you know, you, you can imagine every trick in the book has been tried.
1: Absolutely, but, yeah. But,
0: you know, that this, this notion of a forcing function is an interesting one, that the, the idea that it's a fixed six pages is really useful as well. Because, you know, I know that um, you know, Andy writes a six-pager on AWS each year for, for Jeff, and I sit there going, you know, golly, how would you, you know, f- fit an entire business into six pages? And you know, I, when I struggle to do the ANZ business, and I know Edwin, who who runs our APAC business, does the same. And it's a super um, forcing function because it does um, force you to synthesise um, your messaging into a coherent six-page narrative. You can't just waffle on forever, and you've got to get to the important points, and you've got to you got to make it, um, you know, constructive and, and and really focused. And so that becomes um, useful as well.
1: I imagine it must. Be- be a beautiful time-saving device because i feel like like that much thought does not go into powerpoint decks and there's often a lot of unnecessary totally waffle yeah whereas this it's all it's all there mm-hmm. and i want to pick back up on what you said about how within the meeting is when people will actually read the narrative is that right yeah, so there's kind great. of time blocked out for reading yeah
0: normally what happens is you you take um you read in silence for the first 15 to 20 minutes of the meeting and everyone reads in silence and again was there's, there's a there's a bunch of protocols around that. Um, and What are they? We just complete silence um, because people are, you know, focused on it and concentrating um, on their docs. So, you know, just being respectful around those is important. So it's, it's quite funny. Like it's really – it feels very unnatural when you first join that everyone sits down and, you know, hi, how are you? And let's read a doc and you sit there in silence for 20 minutes and read a doc. Um, it's I, I find it super useful because you do get the situation where um, – Often, what happens, particularly with PowerPoint, is you get people that are just wonderful communicators and can communicate really well um, and present really well. Often, um, that can you know cover a lot of sins. Um, and and the reverse is also true. You get people that are poor communicators uh, who can't get a point across well, but actually, what they're saying is really important. And um, and that's kind of I think that's potentially very risky in a lot of companies. What you, what you want to do is get the right message and because you've got time to construct it well in a narrative, typically what happens, and it's not always the case, you know, invariably if you get a poorly written narrative, um, you know, you don't get a great quality outcome. But when it's well written, getting everyone to the same page with the same data set at the end of that 20 minutes is really powerful. Because the other thing that happens with PowerPoint um, is you'll have someone who has, say, an hour and they'll spend 45 minutes of that hour presenting uh, a pack and and you you've got a bunch of questions through each of each of the pages, so you can stop and ask questions. And often you don't get to a, a really clean end point because you're debating different things, and it leaves a lot to interpretation. So I often find that you just don't get as cleaner an outcome, which means you it actually takes a lot longer because you're revving through things a lot more. It doesn't Absolutely. seem to happen as much.
1: Yeah, I, I do like the fact that it, it really takes out a lot of the biases that. You know, if you've got the gift of the gab, mm-hmm. you can sell most things through a PowerPoint deck mm-hmm. um, and the reverse is true. But also I like the fact that the, the ratios of consuming information versus talking about the information is, is, is really different yeah. here mm-hmm. because you're not just like in passive mode listening to a PowerPoint presentation. Right. You're actively reading and processing yeah. something. Yeah. That must make for a very different quality of discussion. I
0: think so. Yeah, invariably it does.
1: I want to ask about the PRFAQ, which, from what I understand, is Amazon's version of a minimum viable product. Um, sort is, is
0: that? Of. So, well, fair no, to say? probably not. I'd say it's a precursor to a minimum, as we would call a lovable product, as opposed to viable ah, product. But, okay. um, so invariably, it goes back to a leadership principle, right? Which is that, um, everything we do starts with the customer and works backwards. And so, one of the mechanisms we use to, uh, underpin that is the prfaq yeah so um, what does that look like mm, so essentially what happens is that um we have a process we call it a working backwards process um clearly um and the idea is that it's working backwards from the customer there's a set of questions um you won't your listeners won't be able to see these questions but i'm just unpinning on, my security, on tag. my security tag um and there's five questions um If you want to look at those. Can I
1: read these out? You can. So the working backwards questions. Who is the customer? What is the customer problem or opportunity? Is the most important customer benefit clear? How do you know what customers need or want? What does the customer experience look like? That's cool. And this is like a little laminated card that you've got attached to your security necklace. Um,
0: And the reason it's called a working backwards process is because everything we do starts with the customer and works backwards. Now, the first step is to say, all right, well how do I know that this is useful for the customer? And so our um, way of doing that is to write a fictitious press release. And what we do is we write a press release at some point in the future about this particular service or product or initiative. And, um, and the reason we do that is when we tem- tend to have fictitious quotes from um, potential customers and, uh, and other people. That, and, and we're trying to apply a test that says, how do we know that this particular thing that we're proposing to do is really gonna have impact for our customer, because you can build a whole lot of things, and then find you've gotten to the end of a process and go, well, you know, th- that really just didn't add a whole lot of value. So the PRFAQ is is our tool to do that. And so what happens is you start drafting these press releases, and um, it really helps you to think about them in with a customer in mind, because you're saying it's your total um, um, point of reference is whether this will create value or be useful or be valuable and the the quotes help you because you're you're actually saying well how will this person consume this and what would their reaction be to this particular thing so that's the the press release now the faq is kind of interesting because what you then do is you you think up um, a whole series of frequently asked questions and typically they they're grouped into sort of you know outward facing questions you know you know might be how would we think about pricing this you know all of the things you could otherwise think of and you know and internal questions, you know, like it may maybe an investment type conversation, those sorts of things. And and what we try to do is apply a test that says, look, how do we think we try to come up with the hardest possible question. So again, we're trying to use a forcing function that says, look, let's let's have considered as much about this problem as we possibly can through these FAQs. And again, it's just a forcing function to do that planning. And assuming and what tends to happen is these pair FAQs tend to iterate a lot. And uh, and if you get to a good answer, then you go into your sort of MLP Type phase where you're starting to build a prototype and, and getting this thing built but everything starts there there's nothing significant that we do that that doesn't have a PRFAQ. and often what happens is you'll get to a certain point in in the, the life cycle of this thing because I'm using the word thing because it could be a product or a service it could also be a project it could be a whole raft of things and you reference back to the PRFAQ, going oh well you know what do we envisage this would look like and you know how do we track back against that so it's quite a useful mechanism
1: that's fascinating. What percentage of ideas get past the PRFAQ stage?
0: I would say a lot. And the reason I would say a lot is because we don't have a, a defined process for ideation and investment. Um, there's, no, there's no investment committee, there's no clear path. Um, and that's pretty intentional because you, know, you don't know where an idea is going to come from. and equal, So you don't necessarily want to preordain you know, how to get an idea. So we have this management, I guess, philosophy, this idea of the um, organisational yes. Have you heard about that context? i don't think i have no so what we think particularly for people um leaders is we try to think of our role as to find a way to yes so rather than you know you go into a lot of meetings and people think it's their job to to say no really my job um, is if someone's brought me a proposal is to try to work out how to get it to yes and so in many cases what happens with with a prfaq is it iterates which is look oh you know maybe you should think about a or you think about b and look, why don't you go and have a conversation with the person over there? And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure this is quite ready, but, like, I think if you think about A, B, and C, you know, we can get it there. So often what happens is the PRFAQ becomes a tool to help with the process iteration. So the reason I say most is because if, you, if you've got a fundamentally good idea that holds water in the context of creating value for a customer, then most of what we're trying to do is work out how to get it executed. Now, in some cases, that could be really quick and really easily easy, and that process enables that. Uh, in other cases, though, it'll take a lot of iteration to get to a point where we go, okay, good, let's move. You know, and so most of the time you're really working towards yes as opposed to, you know, killing ideas and saying no.
1: I love that, yeah, working towards, yeah, getting mm. to a yes. That's so different to how most people operate because a no makes you sound smart generally because you, you know, it's finding clever arguments. It's easy
0: to say no. It's a lot harder to say yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I love that. Mm. Um, look, my final question for you, Paul, is how can people find out more about you and Amazon Web Services and... By what you're doing, like yeah. where, where can people go to find out more?
0: Thank you. Well, um, look, I really appreciate this opportunity because, um, you know, fundamentally the thing that enables us to be successful for customers in the fullness of time is being able to attract great quality people who have awesome careers here. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to be able to talk about our culture and hopefully... Um, you know, people see it as being interesting and, you know, context around where they can do great work. And, you know, we've got lots of, lots and lots of roles open in Australia and New Zealand today. So we're always looking for great people. Um, you can go onto our website. Um, you know, I'd love it if you're based in, in Sydney or Auckland. We have major customer events each year. Our summit is in April about 30,000 people are expected at the International Convention Centre in Sydney and we'll have a similar one in Auckland I think in the June July time frame and we have a, a whole lot of events you know if you're a developer we have big developer days through the year so I'd encourage you to come to any one of our events uh, as well and we you know we often have meetups and our partners have meetups there's many different ways you can you can come and meet our team and get a sense of the work that we're doing and, and hopefully the, the the work that you might do if you chose to come and work with us
1: That's awesome. And we'll link to the careers page in the show notes and also just the events page as well. So, if people want to find out more, um, we'll put those in the show notes. Paul, it has been an absolute delight and just fascinating hearing how Amazon works. So, thank you so much for your time. It's
0: a pleasure. Thank you. Really appreciate it.
1: Hey there, that is it for today's show. If you like this episode, why not share it with someone else that you think could benefit from it? Uh, I just thought there were so many great tips that Paul shared that so many organizations and leaders could benefit from knowing and maybe trialing out at their organization. So that is it for today's show, and I will see you next time.